Hey, we're gonna continue our series today about financial freedom. So this is gonna be part three of our financial freedom series. If you're joining us for the first time, you can go back over YouTube and find part one and part two, and I know they're really gonna help you. But just a recap, we, God wants us to be spiritually free and physically free when it comes to our finances. He wants us, he doesn't want finances, possessions, money to get a part of our heart. And he also wants us to be physically free that over the course of our lives, we should manage our finances and our possessions in such a way that we actually become more physically free, that we have more options, that we're able to bless more people, that we're less encumbered by debt and commitments in that sense, and that we're more free to fully follow God with whatever he's calling us to in our lives. We've been saying in this whole series, next week we're going to do some principles, but the, the last few weeks we've been doing paradigms. It's like, man, we've got to think like God before we can know how to act like God. That before we need the principles, we need the right thinking so that um, it comes from the right place and it comes from the right heart. And we've talked about two big paradigm shifts we need. First, we need to understand the heart that the number one thing at stake, according to the teachings of Jesus, when it relates to money, possessions, property, and your earning, is your heart. And we can't forget that. We need to see everything through that paradigm. It's not a box to tick. It's like God doesn't just want us to give a portion of our money and then whatever it is, we do whatever we want. He doesn't want money to get our heart. And the second thing we talked about is the church. God loves the local church. And it's his plan to use the local church to accomplish his purposes on this earth. And so we need to love the church. If we're going to be good stewards of what God's entrusted to us, we need to love what God loves. Otherwise, we're just not going to be free in the way he wants us to be free with our finances. And today I want to talk about two more paradigms. These are justice and eternity. And these are two big paradigms. We could do whole teaching series about these, and maybe we will at some point, but right now, just a little, uh, a little taste of these two things, justice and eternity. Because if God cares about something and we don't care about it, how will we be free to handle the money God's entrusted to us as he has intended? My intention today is not just to inspire us, but it's to challenge us. And it's to actually bring some conviction to these areas. As I've been preparing this message, I've been hugely convicted, hugely challenged. I've felt a weightiness on my heart. And I've been discussing it with Katie. We've both felt this weightiness to that this is important stuff for this time in this season. That as a church, we need to grow in our perspective of justice and eternity. So let's get into it. We would know that the, if you summarize the whole of Jesus' teachings, if you summarize the whole of the scriptures, it could be summed up with two commandments. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I love the simplicity of the message of Jesus. Love the Lord with everything you got and love people like you love yourself. To begin shaping our paradigm of justice, we will actually turn to a story that Jesus told in reply to somebody asking him, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So if you've got your Bibles at home, you can turn to Luke chapter 10 and you can make some little notes and highlights as we go here. But Luke 
chapter 10, verse 29. It says, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Have I just gone to the wrong verse? No, I'm right. Do the, and, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The pre a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, but he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, in that day an outcast, somebody who Jews frowned upon, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Some translations say he had compassion on him. It's the same Greek word. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. I know that seems crazy to us, but it's like some natural ointments here. Then he put the man on his own donkey, which means he was walking this long journey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I want to ask the question today, do you see injustice? Do you see injustice? If we take a step back from the story that we see that the priest, very spiritual man, he saw it, but he actually avoided it. And we see the Levite, he saw it and he avoided it. And we saw the Samaritan, he saw it, but had compassion and was moved towards it. But I want to start and go, do you even see injustice? Do you recognize the injustices in our world? Do you recognize the injustice of the taking of land from indigenous peoples, from displacing people? Do you recognize the injustice that's taken place over the last 200 years in New Zealand alone? Do you recognize the social inequality that exists? Do you recognize that while some people have more than enough, that right now you've got a full pantry, you've got a boat in the driveway, a caravan at the storage shed, a batch you can escape to when the levels change, and you can go on overseas holidays normally when it's not COVID whenever you like, while others can't even feed their kids. Even this week, we've had people reaching out to us being like, I can't feed my family and we've been having to help them. But I want to know, do you see the injustice behind these things? Do we recognize that Christian brothers and sisters around the world are literally starving to death while we buy another trinket from Kmart for our home or another new T-shirt for our wardrobe, all of which will either be thrown away or given away probably within the next two years? We don't want to be people that Jeremiah prophesied to in Jeremiah 8, 11, that says, they dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I want to know, do you see injustice? Our world is full of injustices, but we cannot be moved in compassion towards them until we first 
see them. And this is so important, understanding as a, as a paradigm, because God does see injustice. And so we need to see injustice. It starts by seeing. It starts by acknowledging that the system isn't fair. It starts by acknowledging that, um, that it is different and it's not always people's fault. In fact, often it's not. Sometimes it is. Sometimes people do dumb stuff. But it starts by acknowledging that the system isn't fair. And I'm not saying everybody should have the same. I don't buy into a version of equality that means everybody is equal in what they have. But everybody should have a fair go. Everybody should have a fair start. Everybody, there should be some justness and some justice in the system. And we should recognize that the system isn't just. And so do we see the people who do not benefit from the current systems of this world. Some levels of inequality in our world are just intolerable to God and intolerable, therefore, to the teachings of Scripture. Do we see injustice? My next question is, is do we have compassion? In a world of virtue signaling, in a world where, you know, we're all about empathy and feeling what other people feel, we must have more than just kind feelings towards people. When the Samaritan man saw the traveler on the road, he was moved with pity. He was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. Their heartbreak, when other people's hearts are breaking, must cause our hearts to break. And we must be willing to suffer in some small way to help meet others in their suffering. We like to get political. We like to blame. We like to post about it. We like to sometimes even make excuses. It's like, well, some people are just lazy or that's not how it works. But I just don't think that's a godly perspective towards people who are suffering because of injustice. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do, of what they do or don't do, and more in the light of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people in light of what they suffer, not where they got it wrong. Is their suffering real? If the answer is yes, then we must move towards it, not away from it. It's no point in talking about how they got there. We should get there and be people who help. We don't want to be people who see and do nothing. It's not do you see it. It's not do you post about it. It's not do you disagree with it. It's not about posturing. It's do you do something about it. Do we have compassion? Do we as a church, do we as Christians, do we as people still look at the starving people around the world and have compassion? Do we look at the kids without any food in their lunchbox and have compassion? Do we look at the people in cycles of poverty and violence and do we have compassion? Do we have compassion? And we need to understand that compassion means action. It's not compassion if it doesn't mean action. It tells us in the scripture that Jesus looked at the crowds. He had compassion on them. He healed them. He fed them. He met their needs. Compassion always drives action. That's how you know if you have it. It drives action. And we can learn from this story of the Good Samaritan a few different ways that we can love our neighbor as ourselves 
through compassion, through justice. The first is, is that we need to bring justice to the victim. Here, there's no point in starting by talking about all the things that are wrong with the Jericho Road. We need to start by recognizing there's a victim dying because they've been beaten on the side of their road. And we need to make sure that firstly, we bring justice to the victim. What does justice to the victim look like? It means looking, it looks like showing mercy, showing love, showing practical help. In the story, we see time we see money and we see an ongoing commitment to make sure the needs are met of this poor, helpless victim. That's why the process of bringing justice, a justice paradigm, needs to start in our heart. It needs to move to our homes and then to our neighborhoods and then to our world. I'm sick of people who comment about everything that's wrong with the world, but don't actually ever cough up their hard-earned money to ever do something about it. We've got to be people who start not by changing the systems of this world, but start by showing mercy to those who are in desperate need today. This is important. There's some considerations we want to make because not every victim is equal, right? And so we need to be Holy Spirit led, but we also need to consider two things and these are tensions to manage. First is the scale, the scale that not all injustices are equal, not all victims are equal, that when people are starving to death, that is like an urgent, important thing. When people are, when there's genocide, like what's happening in Afghanistan right now, amongst women and children and the church, like these are, by from scale, these are like right up there as important justice issues that we should move towards and do something about to help the victims. And the other consideration is proximity. That actually, as it goes from our hearts to our homes, to our communities, that there should be this inside out. There should be the people around our lives should know our mercy in their lives. The golden rule that Jesus spoke of is so helpful in this, in this way. In the economic realm, if you would apply the golden rule, you would surely say that it would be being generous and helping meet others' needs as we would want them to be generous to us if we were in their same position. That is what should guide us as we help people. What would, if we were them, what would we want somebody to do for us? Well, we should be moved in compassion towards action to do that very thing. Once we have a habit in our lives of bringing justice to the victim, bringing that mercy, we need to make sure we bring justice to the road. I love what the great Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about this. Hear this. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they take their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It's not haphazard and it's not superficial. It comes to see that it comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasy on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth and say, "This is not just." I love that. 
What an inspiration. We bring justice to the victim, but man, we've got to look at ways that we can be a voice that brings justice to the road, that we can advocate, that we can support with a gospel kingdom mindset, that we can support the restructuring, that we can get behind the making things right in our own country in New Zealand. Man, we've got to get behind making the wrong things right in our society. And the third is this, compassion means action, justice to the victim, justice to the road, justice to the root cause. We've got to bring justice to the root cause. The root cause is sin. Sin is more than a doctrine. It's a reality that shapes our world and many people's daily lives. I know that we don't talk about sin anywhere near enough. The Bible talks about it a lot. Sin means missing the mark. Sin is when we don't live dependent on God. Sin is when we try to be the God of our own lives. Sin is the different acts that we commit that are against the rules of a good God who only wants good things for us. And sin is the root cause of all injustice in the world. If we're going to be about solving injustice, we have to be about solving the sin problem in people's lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Speaking of the sinful self, all of this is from God who reconciled us. He brought justice to us. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. Guys, in this justice framework, we don't just want to be another organization out there. We don't want to be another NGO, another community service, another rotary. We have the root cause of injustice and we must fight it. We must fight sin. We can only be good at justice because God has been good to us at dealing with the root cause of it in our lives. So we need to minister holistically. It's what separates us from many of the controversial movements out there. It's why it's sometimes hard to buy into. But when Jesus is a part of the picture, when dealing with the root cause of injustice is a part of the picture, anything can happen. That's why what's happening in Curate Recovery is so mind-blowing effective. It's because it's not just because it's so great and it's such a good community and Paul and the other leaders are amazing. It's because of Jesus dealing with the root cause in people's lives that have set their lives on a trajectory of injustice. It's grabbing that root cause and it's having them surrender their lives to Jesus, repenting, dealing with that and getting free so they can get free in every other way. Come on, it's good news. Material sustenance without spiritual salvation ultimately proves meaningless in this world. We don't have to choose one or the other, but the way we go about justice should always be bringing the whole package of the kingdom and of heaven to people's lives. We can't forget, and this is really where the whole message comes from, from a paradigm. We can't forget that God is just. The God we worship, the God who revealed himself through Jesus Christ, his son, he is just. Deuteronomy 32.3 says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. He's upright and just is he. 
Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. To be just means that God always awards correctly, that God always judges correctly, that he always um, gives correctly, that he is the perfect in fairness. His judgments are faultless. He's never had to apologize for making a bad decision or getting it wrong. He's never overreacted or underreacted because he is just. And I know we talk a lot about God's love these days, but the other side of that coin, you can't have true love without being just. Just is a part of love. And without it, we struggle to understand who God is. We struggle to respect his holiness. We struggle to trust his judgments. We struggle to trust his word when it doesn't make sense. We struggle to comprehend heaven and hell when we don't understand God's just. He knows how to judge fairly. He's the only one who can truly make things right because he is just. Often when we try to make things right, we end up making other things wrong in the name of making something right. That's what's happening in our world at the moment. We're trying to deal with like systemic racism that's in different places. And then well, the way we're trying to deal with it is we're, we're labeling all white people as racist. And I don't really want to get into it today, but we're sort of like in trying to make something right. We're doing another wrong and the whole thing just seems like, but that's what happens when we try to do it without God. He took responsibility for making wrong things right in this world, for taking sin upon himself. Christianity is the story of God making things right, not man making things right. We're not making things right with God. God's making things right with us. He sent his son to die for us. It's why Christianity stands out as unique out of all the religions, because it's a God who came searching for us. And I love, and we can't forget this, and especially in these tough times, Especially in these tough times, we can't forget that God promises to make all wrong things right one day. He'll make up for every struggle. He'll make up for every injustice. He'll make up for every time somebody screwed you over, every time you got dealt an unfair hand. God's promise is one day he is going to make all wrong things right because he is just. That's our Christian hope. That's what we hold on to. Even if we die unfairly for our faith, even if we lose our business, when we lose our children, when we lose our loved ones, when sickness ravages our body, God promises to make all wrong things right one day. He, that's why he is the hope of the world. Man, you can see that God is just even in the way he set up the nation of Israel. I mean, I could talk about this for ages, but I don't have time to today. Just his laws were so just. His laws were so fair. Even in the, if we look at our economic inequalities in our world, but you look at the original Jewish model of the way God set it up, the way he set it up was to deal with the fact that there wouldn't be those inequalities. His, his laws around property, his laws around debt, his laws around slavery, his laws around uh, how to do business, all of these things made for an amazing just society if only they could have been lived out. And hey, we can forget that he's just, but he wants us to be just too. 
He wants us to be just too. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Every act of justice or pursuit of it needs to be grounded in reflecting God, not playing God. And therefore in living out Jesus' command to love your neighbor. We need to understand when we think of money, what does all of this have to do with money? Abundance isn't God's blessing for me to live in luxury. Abundance is his provision for me to help others. In fact, whether or not one adopts the agendas of the so-called left or the right, getting into all the politics, the increasingly acute needs of the poor worldwide, including hundreds and millions of Christians around the world, may well demand nothing less than a significant change of spending priorities on part of many affluent Western Christians. That's me and that's you. The largest issue with us in the West is that there never seems to be a point of contentment. The goalposts keep shifting, and I've experienced this in my own life, and if there's never a point of contentment, there'll never be freedom, and there'll never be, uh, the, we'll never actually embrace the life God has for us, each doing our part to balance the scales of the poor. I want to share this with you. It says, God is not glorified when, he, when we keep for ourselves, no matter how thankfully, what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of unevangelized, uneducated, unmedicated, and unfed millions. The evidence that so many professing Christians have been deceived by this doctrine is how little they give and how much they own. God has prospered them. And by an almost irresistible law of consumer culture, baptized by the doctrine of health, wealth, and prosperity, they've brought bigger and more houses, newer and more cars, fancier and more clothes, better and more meat, and all manner of trinkets and gadgets and containers and devices and equipment to make life more fun. They will object. Does not the God of the Old Testament promise that God will prosper his people? Indeed. God increases our yield so that by giving, we can prove our yield is not our God. God does not prosper a man's business so he can move from a Ford to a Ferrari. God prospers a man's business so that 17,000 unreached people groups can hear the gospel. He prospers the business so 12% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. You know, they've done research and they've discovered that if every Christian just in America, if every Christian in America gave 10%, just gave 10%, that all of world poverty would be alleviated. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? The average is 3%. I don't know what your average is. My average is personally more than that, a lot more than that. And I think God is calling us all to actually increase our ability to understand that what he's blessed us with is so that we can be a blessing for the movement of God's justice in this world. We just finish as we just flick from justice to eternity. I love what um, Jim Allett said. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. John Wesley said, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. I don't need to remind you, surely, that we are all going to die one day and we can't take anything with us. Everything you saved, everything you invested, everything you accumulated, you can't take it with you. I can't take it with me. But 
we can send it ahead of us. There is a heavenly reward. We should operate with an eternal perspective. Psalm 39 verse 4 says, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. Remember, I'm mortal. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, but without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Jesus said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. We understand that a big in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, we understand from the rich young ruler, he said, if you give everything away and sell it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. We understand there's something about the mystical nature of when we give to justice, when we are generous, that it's like we're sending it ahead for heaven's provision. I don't know if you know this, but we're not all going to be the same in the life that is to come. We all get in by the grace of Jesus, but there is a reward for our service in heaven. The scriptures say the first will shall be last and the last shall be first. And I want to spend eternity living the best life for God that I possibly can. So I'm happy to go without things in this life because I'm not living for this life. I'm not living for the dot. I'm living for the line of eternity. God is not against, God is not against investing. He's just against making bad investments. Don't invest in a currency that is going to disappear. Don't put all your eggs in a basket. You wouldn't invest in a company if you knew it was going to go bust in 10 years time. Yet that is how we treat our lives. We mount up all the stuff rather than using our accumulation as an opportunity to give, to give and to give more. It's not about whether or not you accumulate stuff. It's about the reason you do. It's about the reason you're in business. It's about the reason you're investing. Are you doing it to be able to give more away? Or are you doing it to be able to have more yourself? Our generosity is not only for God's glory. It's not only for others' good. But you need to know that it's also for your good one day too. I love Martin Luther. He said this, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands that I still possess. Look, we talked about a lot today, but what's burning on our hearts is that we'd be people of justice, that we'd understand the paradigm that God is just, that he cares about justice, that he wants us to reflect his justice heart to the world, that he wants us to be uncomfortable with mass inequality. He wants us to understand that he's given us good gifts, but because he has, he's entrusting us to be able to put those in the areas that break his heart, that where that's just not okay. And so we can conclude some, a few things from today. Loving your neighbor has no boundaries. Your neighbor is not just the people like you. It's not just the people next to you. It's the people you come across in your life that need your help. We need to understand that just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. Sometimes we can be like, well, it's hard to, you know, buy everything ethical and do everything right and give everything away to the right organizations. Just do something. Something is better than getting caught up in the everything. The third thing we could say is we could live off less. 
I'm sure almost most people watching me today, probably not everyone, but most people could live off less. There are things we could go without so that other people can have the essentials. You could do things like support a child through Tear Fund or World Vision where there's a holistic gospel justice thing helping those children. You could give to your local church. If curate your local church, we'd grow in so much about how much of the stuff we're giving away. Last year, we gave away $765,000 to justice initiatives. Over the last five years, $1.9 million. And we're just every year increasing the percentage of the budget we give, up, we give to this stuff. Actually, in December, we're adding something new to our calendar where we're going to have a Curate Cares offering. Where we're going to highlight everything Curate Cares does locally and globally. And you're going to be able to give to it above and beyond your regular giving because we want to see as much money go to that stuff as possible because we know it's part of what God wants us to do and we want to be obedient to that. I want to let you know that Curate Cares wants you involved. It's not a sales pitch and, you know, when the, lock, when the levels and stuff change, but I want you involved in Curate Cares, that there's room for your initiatives, there's room for your ideas. Reach out, talk to your small group leader, talk to our Curate Cares pastor, the amazing Steve Hanna, and we'd love to be doing more, but we need people to carry the baton to see that happen. And... Since it's one of those weeks where there's a lot going on around the world, I want to let you know that today uh, we're actually will be receiving donations for two special initiatives. The first is towards the victims of the latest uh, sort of tragedies in Haiti. Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world, and we're partnering with Convoy of Hope in Haiti to bring relief through local churches to people there. So there should be some links coming up. You can give to Curate Church, tag it as Curate Cares. We'll make sure it goes there today. Or you can give directly to Convoy of Hope. The other thing you could do is we're going to be supporting uh, the work going on in Afghanistan. It's horrible what's happening there. And we're going to be supporting Afghanistan through Convoy of Hope, but also through Open Doors, which helps and supports the persecuted church all over the world and have been working in Afghanistan for years. And so you can donate directly to Open Doors or you can donate through Curate Church. I hope you heard me today. I hope it was challenging. I know it's challenged me. But we need to be people of justice. We've got to see it. We've got to see it. We've got to be moved in compassion towards it. We have to reorganize our financial priorities to make sure it takes a place. And we need to remember that as we do that, we're reflecting God's heart to this world. Don't live for just this world alone. Keep an injustice paradigm. Keep an eternal paradigm. And we'll start moving towards the financial freedom that God has for us. I want to bless you all. I want to pray for you. If you don't know Jesus out there today, I want you to reach out because somebody could lead you right now into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. Relationship. A life-changing relationship with Jesus. You can turn from your sin today and you can receive his hope. If you've got questions about that, you can reach out today. There's pastors ready to chat with you right now. Remember what I said, church, let's be strong. Let's keep striving forward for God in this season and uh, take care. I'm going to pray for you all now and then we'll let you go. You can connect with us through all the links coming up. Heavenly Father, thank you for all of our amazing people listening today. Once again, bless them. Be with them. For the people starting relationships with Jesus today, we celebrate with them. God, thank you for your heart for justice. Would it become our heart too? 
Would your Holy Spirit lead us in what to do with what you've been speaking to us about today? Bless, uh, thank you, God. Bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen.